I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 41 of the Talking Golf History podcast. This episode is a little bit of a throwback, as it was recorded back in 2019. Back in a time when we didn't worry about COVID-19, Back in a time when Ryder Cups and major championships weren't canceled. Back in a time where life felt almost carefree. Before we start our show today, I want to encourage all of you to check out the website for the Golf Heritage Society. The Golf Heritage Society is a nonprofit organization that helps celebrate and preserve golf history. Take a moment to check out golfheritage.org. Great articles, a great membership and an amazing love for the game. Today on our show, I want to do something a little different. I wanted to introduce you to one of my favorite sports history podcasts, Sports Forgotten Heroes, and its host, Warren Rowan. Warren does an amazing job sharing the stories of those who have been lost in time. And our podcast today covers the stories of three major champions who seemingly came out of nowhere to win a major championship. These stories are just too good not to share with our audience, so I asked Warren if Talking Golf History could re-air this interview. I know you all will love it, so listen in. Not every winner of a golf major championship is a widely known name. In fact, throughout the history of golf's major championships, there have been several unknowns who have risen to the top of the golf world to win the Masters, the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, or the PGA. And they've gone on to enjoy terrific careers on tour. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at three golfers who won a major championship and were virtually never heard from again. Mungo Park, David Brown, and Jack Fleck. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome to our latest edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. And today, Time for a little golf. Yep, we're going to put baseball to the side for a moment and talk some golf with a terrific guest, Connor T. Lewis. Connor, who has a wonderful podcast of his own, Talking Golf History, and who founded the Society for Golf Historians, will join us in just a moment to talk about three men who won a golf major championship and were basically never heard from again. 
Mungo Park, David Brown, and Jack Fleck. Park, who came from a very strong golf lineage, won the 1874 Open Championship. Now, before you say anything about having to go way back in time to find such an unknown for many golf fans, it's not that much of a stretch because that's when guys like old Tom Morris, young Tom Morris, and Willie Park, names very familiar, like I said, to many golfers were the champions of the day. And the same goes for David Brown, who won the Open Championship in 1886. As for Jack Fleck, he was absolutely an unknown when he won the U.S. Open in 1955, his first win on tour. And then he went on to win just two more tournaments during his time on the PGA Tour. Now, all three have such unique stories, really cool stories about their victories, and they are told so well by Connor. Before we get there, though, remember... Spread the word and let your family and friends know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. Sure, everyone knows about Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan and Jack Nicklaus and Wayne Gretzky, but how many know the story of Bill Barilko or Ed Delahanty or Frank Ryan? Our archives are filled with such great stories about sports and human interest. There's something here for everyone. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Follow on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Find our page on Facebook and visit us at SportsFH.com where you can email us with your suggestions and comments, learn more about our guests, learn more about the forgotten heroes we talk about, and so much more. That's SportsFH.com. Thanks. All right, now let's get to today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 58, with a terrific golf historian, Connor T. Lewis. Connor, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks for stopping by. Happy to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Hey, why don't you tell us a little bit about the podcast that you're on, Talking Golf? Yeah, you bet. Uh, the Talking Golf History Podcast. Uh, Rod Morey out of Australia, and I'm out of Tampa, Florida. We put together uh, an idea of a podcast based on an interview. I did much like this one uh, with Rod Morey on, um, let's see, it was the I Seek Golf podcast. And we just talked golf history and kind of went from there. And he said, hey, you know, you should really think about doing a podcast. And I said, well, no one would ever listen to it. <laughs> and uh, he convinced me we're 11 episodes in. And uh, I, I, I can't believe it, but we have thousands of listeners. So I'm a little shocked by that. But uh you know, I've, all, I've been shocked from the get-go um, how fast uh, how fast the listenership and the Twitter followers and the Facebook group, specifically built around golf history, has taken off. It's really taken me aback, to be honest with you. Very cool. And when do you release new episodes of Talking Golf? Uh, well, let's see. I re release usually every two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, however, I am trying to put in a specialty podcast. So the majority of our podcasts uh, just go under the brand Talking Golf History. And they are either discussions between uh, Rod and myself, or we have uh, uh, ho you know guest hosts on our show like uh, Sid Matthew. Uh, we'll have the uh, senior director of the USGA Golf Museum on. 
in the next week for the U.S. Open. Mm-hmm. And then once a month, we're planning on doing uh, a specialty podcast called Golf from the Fringe. Mm-hmm. And it is unique to, I think, any golf podcast out there because it's a story. So, for instance, uh, by the time I think this gets released, you'll be able to look at the Talking Golf History podcast. It will likely be episode 11. Mm-hmm. But it'll be a subcategory called Golf from the Fringe. And it's about a 40-minute narrative of the champion who lost his mind, which is the story of uh, the youngest U.S. Open champion of all time, Johnny McDermott, who (laughs) won two back-to-back U.S. Opens and then within a year was committed to an insane asylum for the rest of his life. Wow. So I'm planning on a lot of stories like that uh, once a month that, you know, like golf history stories that nobody's ever heard of. Sure, sure. That's what uh, makes these podcasts so interesting and yeah. why we do sports forgotten heroes it's a lot of fun oh absolutely same trend same thought right very cool and what about the um society of golf historians how did that come about and can you tell us a little bit about it yeah so uh funny enough uh that started i think august of last year so that'd be 2018 so we're not even a full year in uh it started because a buddy of mine I think was just tired of me talking to him about golf history. And he was like, <laughs> you know, you know he's like set up a Twitter account already. So I was like, all right, I'll try it. And literally. I, I thought I'd have 10 followers <laughs> and I think we're pushing 6,200 under a wow. year. Wow. So yeah. And it's been crazy. I mean, like for instance, um, I, I think you're aware of this, but the golf channel picked up one of my stories, the long lost legend of Lido. Uh, mm-hmm. which is about the legendary Lido Club uh, built by Charles Blair McDonald and Seth Rayner in 1914. Mm-hmm. And it no longer exists. It only existed from 14 to 1942. And um, I ended up doing a, a little special for the Golf Channel on Live from the PGA on the Lido. So it was myself and uh, architect Jim Urbina walking the site and telling the story of the long-lost legend of Lido. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And And Connor... Where does your interest in golf stem from? Wow, that's a good one. Um, you know, I, honestly, I started golf late in life. Uh, we can blame that on my wife. Uh, we were dating at the time. This is, oh, probably 17 years ago. So mm-hmm. it's not even that long ago. And my wife just said, you need to pick up a hobby. You're boring the hell out of me. <laughs> and I started playing golf. I remember I'd say two or three rounds in, I played with um, – my now in-laws and they're all scratch, you know, golfers. So they whooped me by like 40 strokes. And I just said, you know, I'm either going to get really good at this game or I'm never going to play it. And so fortunately at the time I lived in Portland, Oregon, where you can swing a club year round and kind of taught myself golf. And within I'd say three years, I was a single digit. I've been as low as a two. And then, um, about 12 years ago, uh, some crazy guy was at a golf show in Iowa. This is, I moved to Iowa and it was in the middle of winter. So you can't play golf in Iowa. And, uh, I went to a, like a, what do you call this? Like a golf dome mm-hmm. where you can hit balls indoors. So I'm at this dome and, um, hoping to hit some golf balls and damn it. If they didn't have like a, a golf show there. And it was like the worst golf show. It's like the kind you have in January where all of the polo shirts are like rainbow colored with matching shorts, like nothing you'd ever want to buy. And I ran into two guys, uh, Bill Reed and Russ Fisher, 
And they, here's these guys, and they're wearing knickers and uh, newsboy caps, and they have this whole stand of clubs with hickory shafts. And I'm like, look at these two guys. But I love history. I've always loved history. It wasn't specific to golf history at the time. And I, I struck up a conversation, and they kind of dared me into hitting a Walter Hagen hickory shafted driver. Mm. And I just busted that thing on the screws. I mean, it felt so good. And so I was kind of hooked. I started playing uh, hickory golf for seven years and gutty wow. golf for two years after that. And I just started studying, you know, four or five hours a day. And I'm weird. I'm one of those guys, that if I read something with golf history, it sticks in my brain forever. But it's the only thing I have that ability for. <laughs> it's a wasted superpower until Twitter, right? A wasted superpower. Very interesting. Well, I'm glad we found you because you sound very passionate about golf history. And with all you're doing, I am sure we're going to have a great episode here of Sports Forgotten Heroes. So today, we're going to do something a little different. As we get into the heart of the golf season and two of the most significant golf championships They're on the horizon, the U.S. Open, and just a few weeks later, the Open Championship, or British Open, as many like to refer to it. We're going to discuss three unknown champions, or at least two unknown, and one whom many might have heard of but know little about. We're talking about Mungo Park, who won the Open Championship way back in 1874 at Musselburgh Links, David Brown, who won the 1886 Open Championship, also at Musselburgh, and finished second in the 1903 U.S. Open. And then we're going to jump ahead more than 50 years, really almost 70 years, to the 1955 U.S. Open Championship. And we're going to talk about one of its most unlikely winners, Jack Fleck, who beat Ben Hogan in an 18-hole playoff. So, if you can, please, first tell us what you can about Musselburgh. You played host to, I don't know, like a half dozen open championships in the late 1800s. Where is Musselburgh, and what kind of course was it, and is it still around? Oh, great question. And you're really, you're hitting to my heartbeat here. Um, If you were to look at my... I'm, I'm actually doing this interview from my golf office, and I've dedicated most of this room to uh, pre-1900 Musselboro. So I have oh, Willie cool. Park Sr., who won uh, four Open Championships. His son won two, and his brother won one. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the first Open Championship of all time, o- Open Champion of all time, and all three of those hailed from Musselboro. So Musselboro was one of the three. Uh, courses that hosted the original open rota so the for the first 13 years of the open championship the open was played and a lot of people may not know this was played at prestwick mm-hmm. and through those original 13 years it was only a 12-hole golf course so to win the open you would actually play three rounds at prestwick for a total of 36 holes now um and uh, after um uh, young tom morris won the Open Championship three times. He retired what was, if you're a WWE fan, like a a, a championship belt. They used to play for a Moroccan <laughs> belt. So I, I liken it to a WWE championship belt. And the rules were back then that if you won the championship 
belt thrice in a row, three times, that you would then become the owner of that belt. Oh, very so a cool. Side tribute. Yeah, a little, little side trivia for you. Um, in 1870, uh, the youngest Open Championship ever, uh, Open winner ever, young Tom Morris, claimed his third Open Championship in a row, and he takes the belt. So because of that, young Tom Morris, is a little trivia question for you, is the only man to have ever canceled a major championship. Because quite frankly, in 1871, they did not have a trophy to give out, so they canceled the Open. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, yep. Majors have been canceled due to war, but never because of one man, with the exception of young Tom Morris, who was an amazing golfing prodigy. He won the Open Championship four times in a row. So what happened was they lost this, this belt, and quite frankly, Presswick didn't want to pay all the money it would take to replace it with what would be the claret jug. <laughs> so what they did was they opened up into a partnership with uh, the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, which was then at Musselboro Links, and the RNA at St. Andrews. And so from that point on, from 1872 and on, the Open rotated between those three up until 1892, which is a totally different story. Mm -hmm. So Musselboro oddly enough, was a nine-hole course. It was the only nine-hole course ever to host an Open Championship. Uh, you had Prestwick with 12 holes, and you had St. Andrews, which, as we know, has 18. Mm -hmm. And through all three of these uh, uh, venues, they would play 36 holes for the championship. It wasn't a 72-hole event. Right. So as to your question as to Musselboro today, it is a eastern suburb of Edinburgh, which is the capital of Scotland. And it does exist today. It is probably one of the few courses that has been untouched by modern evolution. Oh, wow. So, it, and, oh, and by the way, if any of your listeners are listening, you live over there in the UK or you're here in the United States and you're visiting Scotland, I believe it costs $35 to play Mothabra. That's my kind of course. Oh, it's, no, and I'll tell you, I, I, one of my, one of the painting I have right in front of me is called, um, uh, at, at Miss Foreman's, right? So Mrs. Foreman's, forfeit at Mrs. Foreman's, sorry. And uh, it, it's a championship match of 1870 between Willie Park Sr. and old Tom Morris. Mm. But the cool thing about it is, I believe it was the fourth green, uh, was called Mrs. Foreman's hole. And you'll like this, and your, your listeners will like this. As you play the fourth hole, when you finish the hole, you would literally take three steps, and there was a pub right behind the green. <laughs> and they'd serve you beer right at, through the window. I mean, how perfect is that? That's and perfect. Then, I mean, that back in like to the like the 1600s, they were serving beer from Mrs. Foreman's pub. So that's, I, yeah, that's great really little cool. rich history of Musselboro. So I mispronounced it earlier. It's not Musselburg. It's Musselboro. I yeah. stand corrected. That's no, great. that's right. Yeah, Scottish thing. Yep. yep. Hey, so in 1874, along comes this guy named Mungo Park. Great name, by the way. It's an awesome name. And yeah. he, wins, he wins the Open Championship. Yeah. Who was Mungo Park? And tell us a little bit about his golf lineage. You briefly yeah. mentioned it. After all, he was not the only member of the Park family to make his mark in golf. No, he was not. Um, I'll give you a little bit of, uh, of perspective here. So I kind of mentioned the first Open Championship of 1860. So just to put this in perspective, from 1860 
1875, so 15 years, only two men not named, with, with not named Park or Morris won the Open Championship. So that puts a little bit of perspective of the dominance between the Park family and the, the Morris family. That's mm-hmm. the Tom Morris and uh, Willie Park Sr. Mm-hmm. Now, from 1860 to 1875, that same period, only three men won the Open Championship without the first name Willie or Tom. The one that stands out, of course, <laughs> is Mungo, who we're going to talk about today, who became one of the most unlikely major champions of all time. Mm-hmm. And so here's the story. Um, Mungo Park was born in uh, 1836. He is three years the junior to Willie Park Sr. and learned the game of golf at the age of four. He, unlike his brother, did not pursue the game of golf as a profession. Uh, instead, he decided to be a fisherman. And, and these are the days where you'd go out on a boat, we wouldn't see you for months at a time. So Mungo, a non-professional golfer, right, spends his first 20 adult years of his life at sea. Not as a golfer. He's just purely a fisherman. And 20 years later, he comes back to land and is coaxed into playing in the 1874 Open Championship at Musabra by his brother. Mm-hmm. So Willie comes to his brother and Mungo and says, hey, you know, I think you really should play in, this, in, in the Open this year. It's at Musabra, so it's right in your backyard. You don't have to travel to St. Andrews. You don't have to go to Presswick. Let's get together and let's play in this thing together. So you got to imagine, this is his first ever major. It's his first ever major tournament. Which is outstanding to me. What 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 made anyone think that he could play? Did he play golf growing up? I mean, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he started with, at the age of four. Uh, he played sporadically. Um, he was playing golf at Musabra at the time, and I think he was competitive enough that his brother just said, "You know what? You're playing good enough golf. Why don't you just come play in the Open?" You know, it's it's literally one day tournament of thirty six holes back then. Mm-hmm. So it's one day of your life. And so Mungo enters the tournament literally an unknown. Um, the man probably smelled by, like fish still, for all I know. <laughs> and he goes out and wins the most, one of the most improbable major championships by beating, at that time, the greatest golfer that had ever existed in young Tom Morris mm-hmm. by a whopping two strokes. Um, by eight, after 18 holes, uh, which was the turn for them, he had a four-shot lead. And at the end of 36 holes, he beat young Tom Morris by two strokes. And you have to think about this. So young Tom Morris is under the age of 24 at the time. He's four-time open champion. Uh, He had just won four in a row. Uh, He loses to Tom Kidd. He plays against Mungo Park in, you know, the 1874 open at Musabra. And he is the clear favorite. And back then, if if you were betting against young Tom Morris, you might as well be just handing out money because he was winning everything. He was that dominant. Mm. And Mungo comes out off the fishing boat and wins by two strokes over. I mean, listen, when, when you, people ask me a name that my top five golfers of all time, young Tom Morris is in my top five. He was that dominant. Wow. He changed the game. Wow. So it's like, um, I'm trying to think it's like, um, you know, watching one of those guys from the greatest catch, come out and beat Tiger Woods in 2000. Right, right. I mean, it was that big of a, a wow. Wow. What kind of game so, did Mungo have? I mean, what made him better than everybody else, particularly that day? 
Yeah, well, I'll say this. Here's a, a, an unusual fact about the Park family. Um, they were the greatest putters of all time. Uh, Willie Park Sr. was considered the greatest go- uh, putter of his era. Uh, Willie Park Jr. was the greatest putter of his era and wrote the first ever putting book on golf called The Art of Putting. Hmm. Um, I'll give you a little bit more information than you want. but um, No, please, go what ahead. What happened was... Um, a, a gentleman named by the name of Walter Travis in the United States, who was previous from Australia, read the book Art of Putting at the age of 35 and ended up becoming the best putter of his generation based on that instruction from Willie Park. And in the 1920s, when Bobby Jones couldn't seem to close a major, um, Walter Travis offered Bobby Jones a putting lesson, right? And Bobby Jones showed up late. He was still a teenager at the time for his putting lesson. And Walter Travis, the old man, as they called him, um, was upset by the fact that he was so rude to be late that he turned him down. (laughs) Three years later, he gives Bobby Jones that lesson, and Bobby Jones wins 13 majors. Wow. And becomes the greatest putter of his generation. So if you really, I call it, who's the greatest putter of all time? I say the coaching tree going back to Willie Sr. is pretty strong. Yeah, sure. It's hard to find a better coaching tree than that. Sure. Uh, so the putting rang strong. Uh, Mungo and Willie Park Sr. were also tremendously long off the tee back then. And long off the tee back then is not long off the tee now. Um, it was probably under 200 yards off the tee. Uh, but then again, the course was shorter. A major championship course would be somewhere between 5,500 yards and 6,000 yards. Mm-hmm. You're playing with long nose wooden clubs with smooth face irons, probably no more than seven clubs in your bag. Um, as a matter of fact, that most of them didn't even have a bag. They just had caddies carry their clubs. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're playing a gutta percha ball, which about every three holes, you need a new one because you've mangled it out of shape. Hmm. So it was a different game back then, a little bit. So so really, it was are, are you saying that it was his putting that vaulted him to yeah. the top of the leaderboard to beat young Tom Morris. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's extremely fair to say, and I'd say that much like uh, his nephew, Willie Park Jr., who coined the phrase, um, a man who can putt is a match for anyone. Hmm. So uh, uh, also under that same lineage is, you know, you uh, drive for show, putt for dough. He did not say that, but, um, (laughs) but but the same thing. I mean, he, he, the great equalizer for Mungo and the parks for that record, was their prodigious putting. Mm. They could just put the lights out of any green and match that with you're playing on the park's home turf. Right. So you have a home field advantage. Um, you also have to understand that the folks at Musselburgh, uh, they were known as those dirty miners at the time. It was a mining community. Okay. And we didn't, have, we didn't have uh, golf ropes back then. So the spectators would just walk right down the middle of the fairway. And this goes back to a story that goes back to 1870, uh, which was that marathon match between old Tom Morris and Willie Park Sr., this painting I have on my wall. And it's called Forfeit at Mrs. Foreman's because old Tom Morris got so ticked off that the spectators were kicking his ball into the rough. Wow. Major. I mean, they're paying, playing for money that would have bought a house. Wow. And here are these spectators interfering with his ball he got to that pub hole, which I just mentioned, and literally went into the pub and refused to come out. <laughs> and so my painting, the painting on my wall with Willie Park Sr. with a stern look, Willie uh, Park is on the, um, uh, the for- Mrs. Foreman's green. And in the background, you can see 
uh, old Tom Morris with a pint of beer smoking a, a cigar, or not cigar, a, uh, a pipe uh-huh. in the background, uh-huh. refusing to come outside. So it was, a, it was a different game, but home field advantage and putting. Yeah, I mean, a, a great combination to help anyone win win a big tournament. Now, yeah. as you had mentioned, golf was a lot different back then as it is compared to today, of course. It is, yeah. Um, equipment was different. The ball was nothing like it is today. Course conditions were quite different. And Absolutely. you've already discussed somewhat that there were spectators there, but a tournament like that, how many spectators were there and how big were the fields and what was playing tournament golf like back then? Yeah. So your spectators, you have to imagine now the open championship was the tournament. So if you were ever going to go to a tournament to watch golf, that was the one Uh, your tournament rounds would have been, uh, fairly large from a spectator basis. It wouldn't be the thousands that we have today, but there were certainly hundreds, maybe as many as a couple thousand golfers, or I'm sorry, spectators in the crowd. Um, so, you know, you, you'd, you'd have a pretty good grouping. They'd be following the favorites. St. Andrews would have certainly brought people down from the rail line uh, to watch uh, young Tom Morris and old Tom Morris uh, fight for another open championship. Mm-hmm. You would have had folks coming in from North Berwick in Edinburgh, which again, Edinburgh is the capital and Scotland is a golfing, you know, hub at that point. Mm-hmm. Now there were certainly plenty of, of people and spectators on the property. The fields back then weren't what they are now. We didn't have international fields. We had players um, really back then from Scotland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we might've had a couple from England, but the majority were from Scotland. And for um, this tournament, I think we had somewhere in the realm of uh, 40 to 50 players, which was quite common for those early opens. But then again, you had, these were the best players in the world. So I I don't take anything away from them. These guys could have browbeaten anybody at the game of golf. And I can't tell you, they're shooting rounds in the seventies as someone who's played gutty golf, um, (laughs) shooting rounds in the seventies with a ball that goes less than 200 yards has no spin and you're hitting smooth face irons that have 10 degree gaps with a long nose wood, that's a damn good score. <laughs> Tiger Woods would have a hard time shooting a 78 in a round with gutties. That's a guarantee. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a little case study of this. Um, I played gutty golf out. Uh, I used to belong to a club called Elmcrest, Elmcrest Country Club in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, when I lived in Iowa. This is when I first started playing gunny. Mm-hmm. And I took the head pro out to play golf with me. I said, we're going to go out, and we're going to play some gutty golf. Now, I'm taking him out. He's never done it before. There are no wooden tees. So you tee your ball up with wet sand. Mm. So I, I'm carrying around a bucket of sand. Back then, there would be like a trough of sand or a, uh, a big basket of sand and water that you'd make these tees out of. And on the first T, I hit one right down the middle. Then I hand the long nose driver to Larry Gladson, who uh, was one of the first coaches for Zach Johnson, by the way. Oh, wow. Great guy. Mm-hmm. And um, Larry hit, like, I'd say a very semi poor shot. <laughs> and he just kind of like was like, oh, like, you know, he's like, this is different. And we get, we get to the second shot. Now he's got a, 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 a cleek. So a cleek's like a three iron. It's got a swing weight that's like probably an E2, so that's 10 swings, 10 swing weights heavier 
at a modern club uh-huh. and he basically foozles the shot, which means it goes nowhere. <laughs> and he hands the club back to me. He goes, all right, I'm heading back to the clubhouse. <laughs> it was, it's that it's just a different game and it's hard, but yeah. it, if you take your ego out of it, it's a heck of a lot of fun just to realize how they played the game back then. It sounds fun. I know that there are tournaments and organizations uh, throughout the country, probably uh, overseas yeah. as well, where they play hickory shaft of golf, all, yeah. all different things. Hey, yeah, I think there's only there's only four gutty tournaments, I think, in the United States, maybe in the world. Mm-hmm. The majority are hickory, which is kind of like your 1920s. Mm-hmm. They're using kind of a modern ball with hickory shafted clubs with grooves. Mm. But gutties, gutties for the, the diehards, that's for sure. Hey, back to Mungo. Yeah. He actually played in several open championships. In fact, I think it was like uh, 10 of them. And he yeah. finished in the top 10 four other times. He did, Did yeah. he play golf in any other tournaments that you're aware of? Was there any sort of circuit for golfers to play on? Or was yeah. playing the open so, championship once a year, was that it? Yeah, the open championship really changed Mungo's life. I mean, after that, he became uh, a club maker with his his uh, brother, Willie Parkinson's uh, golf company. He became a teacher, as in a golf instructor, an architect, and then a professional. Uh, he posted five top 10 finishes in the Open Championship. To answer your question, there wasn't a tour at the time, but how the professionals made their money were um, essentially um, individual matches. So, for instance, um, right before um, right before young Tom Morris died, which would be almost a year, not even quite a year after this match occurred, uh, Mungo Park and Willie Sr. took on old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris in a match. So what they do is they, they'd have these challenge matches and they play for a hundred pounds and a hundred pounds was a ton of money back then. Right. Let and, me, ju- let me just interrupt. Were these things yeah. publicized? Were there spectators oh, yeah. for there? Oh yeah. It was, it was, it was kind of like the old West. It was like the wild West. Cause what would that happen? It was really cool. If you go back to these old uh, newspaper articles, a lot of times they would challenge them publicly, you know, like challenge, ah. challenging you for the honor of I'm a better player than you for a hundred pounds. And what they do is both sides, and these, these turned out to be like really big community events because everyone wanted to support their guy, right? Like everyone supported Willie Park uh, mm-hmm. Sr. was the king of Musselburgh. And so all of Musselburgh and Edinburgh would come out and they'd support him. And then you'd have, um, you know, the Strath, the Strath family and you have the old Tom Morris family up at, at uh, St. Andrews. And they'd play these matches. Sometimes they'd be home and home. Some they so, sometimes they'd be on um, neutral courts or nu- neutral fields, but they uh, they'd play these hundred pound matches, and there'd be three to four of them a year, or there'd be you know five, six, seven, eight with maybe different players, where you just challenge that town's champion to a match. Hmm. And back then, I mean, gambling might have been a national sport of Scotland back then, because I mean people were really into it. If you look at any old painting of a golf scene, one of my, the most famous is uh, the match, uh, golfers. Mm-hmm. Right? It's called the golfers or the match, the match at St. Andrews, uh, painted by, um, uh, oh gosh, I'm blank, uh, Charles Lees. And um, if you look at that closely, there's at least three different portions of that painting where bets are being paid. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, unbelievable they're they're gambling on every match every stroke on a putt you know it, it was really 
crazy at the time. So that was really your professional tour was really, I challenge you for the honor of who's the better golfer. And then once a year, you'd have the open championship for the outright uh, championship golfer, champion golfer of the year. Mm -hmm. How did Mungo fare in some of those uh, uh, challenges? He did really well. Uh, he and his brother uh, specifically, they, they oftentimes would play as a pair and they were one of the most formidable groups. Um, I'd say probably the greatest. Oh man, that's a really good question. So what would happen is um, young Tom Morris and Jamie Anderson of St. Andrews were probably unbeatable. But what would happen is people would challenge old Tom Morris, who was up there in age by then, and his putting stroke had gone to Hades. So he was really a liability, if anything, to young Tom Morris. Mm -hmm. So whereas normally you'd have young Tom Morris as this Tiger Woods versus the world, you'd have Tiger Woods, you know, maybe a, a version of Jack Nicklaus, except, with the exception of Jack Nicklaus can still sink putts. <laughs> uh, it got so bad that old Tom Morris was started to be referred to as the misser of short putts. Oh boy. And there's a story that a postcard was sent to St. Andrews and it was addressed to the misser of short putts and it was delivered to old Tom Morris's. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. So it was well known. It was well known and tragic really, but mm. um, yeah, the grand old man of golf, you can't stay on top forever. Yeah, sure. Hey, in all your research, yeah, what intrigued you most about Mungo Park? You know, I think it's it's much like the next next person we're going to talk about. I think I just like the idea of, you know, here's this guy who's basically coming off a boat. He spent 20 of his professional years, his adult life at sea, and in the very first major championship he plays in, all he does is win. And not only that, he beats young Tom Morris, you know, the greatest golfer of many generations up until that point. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's something to be said about that, right? Where guy comes out of the dark and just outright wins the open championship. He had five top 10 finishes in the next 10 years mm -hmm. of the open championship. So here's this guy that's coming off the fishing boat, um, wins the open championship, says, you know what? I'm good with fishing. I'm just going to, I'm going to take up this golf thing, make a career out of it. And he does it. <laughs> and he does it well. I mean, I wish I could do that. Yeah, right? I mean, no I kidding. play golf for a week, I'm ruined. Like, my two <laughs> handicaps are 20. <laughs> uh, you got to admire somebody like that. Sure. And just, you know, he's like my dad. My dad cannot play golf for three years and he'll go out and shoot a 79. It's just like, it makes you want to throw oh, up. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, he's that guy. Yeah. All right, let's move on to another winner of the Open Championship, David Brown. Now, he was born in Musselboro, and ironically, he eventually passed away in, I hope I get this right, Inveris, Scotland. Yeah. And that's the same place that Mungo did. What yeah. makes the life and career of David Brown so intriguing? You know, David Brown one of my favorite golfers of all time. Again, it's a very similar story. Um, here you have this guy. He's a, he's a professional golfer. Uh, he plays in his first open championship in 1880 and he does well. He does. He's like tied fourth, tied fifth, something like that. He's like top five. And, um, he, so he, he finishes top five and then he gives up the game and he goes, he takes up a trade, a local trade. Apparently he doesn't want to play on the road. He doesn't want to do these challenge matches and, you know, quite frankly, probably doesn't have the name to get those 100-pound uh, uh, awards for winning. 
So he becomes a roofer, a local tradesman. And, mm-hmm. you know, so he kind of gives up the game. And he comes back in 1883 um, when he's coaxed into playing and um, he comes in tied 24th. And so, again, at, at Musabra. So he's basically like a hometown hero, right? Just mm-hmm. comes in, doesn't fare well. That's kind of middle pack. There's like 40 players in 1883. And you know what? It's just not his life. So he goes back to being a roofer. And he has no no intentions of playing professional golf again, which is one of the great things about him. Mm-hmm. So here we have 1886. Um, we have the Musselboro Field, which has now been put together uh, by uh, John Anderson, who's the secretary of the Musselboro Club. He's overseeing the Open Championship in 1886. And John realizes that there's an odd number in the field. And he, he needs another player. So he, he's kind of in a full panic. This is the day of the Open Championship, my dear. I mean, this never <laughs> happens anymore, right? Like, oh, we need a player. Let's grab that guy off the roof. Um, so he, he basically runs uh, like a couple blocks down. And here David Brown is a roofer on top of a roof putting tile down. And he knows him. He knows he can play golf. So it's not going to be a complete embarrassment. But he coaxes uh, David Brown off the roof. And he says, listen. I need you to play in the Open Championship. Again, it's one-day affair. Uh, just give me one day of your life. Now, David comes down. He's, he's convinced he's going to do it. He literally walks with John all the way to the club. Doesn't have his own sticks. Okay? He is wearing his rougher clothes. So it's not a good look. And he is, <laughs> he is given, I have this written down. This is well documented, by the way. John Anderson provides him with a change of clothes. And these are well-documented. They gave him striped pants. And mind you, these are not thin striped pants. These are like convict pants. A frock coat. So a frock coat for you folks in podcast land basically is one of those old-fashioned, like, top hat kind of coats that goes down to your knees. Right? It is a very unusual. And they give him a loom hat, which is a top hat. Oh, my. That's what he's wearing to play in the Open Championship. I mean, you, you, he looks, I mean, like, how does he not look like a circus clown, right? <laughs> so they pull him off, pull him off the roof. They dress them up like, you know, maybe my daughter would dress up a Barbie all mismatched. I mean, he had to look like a fool. Um, he hadn't played in three years in an open championship. He's coming off a roof and he tees off within like 30 minutes with borrowed clubs. Okay. Um, in the first round, uh, Willie Campbell and John Lambert shoot a pair of 78s and they lead uh, David Brown by one, which in and in itself, a field of 45 is kind of a miracle. Sure. Um, So they make the turn at 18. Again, it's all in one day. Brown goes out and ties the, the, the course, uh, the best score of the, of the open championship, which was a 78, um, which was shot earlier that day by Willie Campbell and John Lambert Uh, on the final 18. He shoots a 78, and he wins the Open by two strokes over Willie and Ben Campbell and three strokes over prodigy Willie Park Jr. Wow. So, again, we have this story of, you know, here's this guy. I mean, it's, it's almost more outlandish than Mungo. Uh, yeah, I mean, Mungo this guy comes down off. In an open. Yeah, and yeah. He, comes, he comes off a roofing job. He off a roof. And, yeah. and puts on a pair of clothes. They yeah. hand him some golf clubs. Hey, go on out. We need an even number in the field. And he wins the darn thing. And he wins it. So, again, a, a most improbable uh, win. And, again, much like Mungo, this changes uh, David Brown's life. 
right? He becomes an instructor. He becomes uh, a regular in the Open Championship. Uh, he then moves to the United States and be- becomes a uh, pivotal pro in the United States. And then I think, as you mentioned, uh, in 1903, uh, years later, David Brown ties Willie Anderson in the 1903 U.S. Open. Right. One of the by, first the way, ever by the way, by the way. That yeah. I I I want to get there. So hold on yeah. for one, one right before we get there. You bet. Um. So he wins the Open Championship. Yeah. At that point, was it still a belt or a trophy was being handed? No, out? no. Yeah, it's well, and it is um, almost fifteen years. No, it's almost twenty years. Now I'd say about fifteen years since it's been the Claret Jug. Okay. Okay. Mungo also won the Claret Jug. Okay. Now, one thing I find interesting is that, yeah. as you just said, in 1900, David packs up and moves to Boston. Yeah. Why? Yep. Why did he leave Scotland and come to the U.S.? Yeah, if you look at it, so so he let's go right to it. He, so he wins the uh, Open Championship of 1886, and for the next almost 10 years, just about 10 years, um, he only has two finishes in the open that are outside the top 10. Mm-hmm. So he's on fire. Actually, it was over 10 years. He had two finishes, not in the top 10. And so he is, he's kind of a hot commodity and you got to imagine. So now we're into the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, in 1900, Harry Varden travels over to America and lights the golf world on fire, at least for America. He's like the Johnny Appleseed of golf. Mm-hmm. He played like a hundred matches and only loses two of them. And he basically goes and plays all these, you know, I, I, they were really dirt tracks to be honest with you, but lights the fire of golf in the United States. Like it never had before. Hmm. So you have David Brown, who is this winner of the open championship. He is a top 10 finisher for the last 11 open championships. And he's a hot commodity. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, even in the United States, it was probably a subservient role, but you know, the United States at that time was still the land of opportunity. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the cast model that they certainly had in the United Kingdom, uh, where the head pro was more of a servant than anything. I hate to say that, but that was mm-hmm. kind of the, mm-hmm. the way they were thought of. They were, you know, I pay you, you stay in a pro shop, you don't come out of it. Whereas in the United States, they were pivotal because the game was so new. There was an opportunity to teach um, you know, tons of people, the game of golf, we were expanding golf courses all over the United States at record scores. And here we have an open championship with a perfect resume to get a great job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So he comes over to the U S and in 1901, he finished seventh, if my research yeah. is correct. And the winner of that year, by the way, was the same guy you said just before Willie Anderson, who, yeah. by the way, we did an episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes about. Really? Yes. Episode number nine with Tony Parker from the World Golf Hall of Fame. Yeah. I love Tony. Good yep, guy. Yep. And, and um, you know, David finishes second, his highest finish in the event in 1903, losing to Willie Anderson in a playoff. Yeah. You're right. What yeah. can you tell us about the 1903 U.S. Open Championship and how close Brown came to winning it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it had to be almost a tragedy. Had he not won the Open Championship, it probably would have been been quite painful. Um, So 
David Brown comes in. You have to imagine now Willie Anderson, not quite at this time, but he's on the verge of unheralded popularity in the United States. And Willie Anderson, as I'm sure uh, um, Dr. To- uh, Tony Parker covered, was a, another lost champion. He, he died very early in his life after winning a record number uh, for uh, U.S. Open champions. Yeah, in like five years. And I think he passed yeah. something like pleurisy or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you basically yeah. have Jack Nicholas and Ben Hogan. And by the way, Willie Anderson died like in like at the age of 31. Yeah, so there's very no young, very young. How many more he may have won because he was still in his prime. So right off the bat, first round of the uh, U.S. Open 1903, um, Willie Anderson sets the tone, right? He comes out, shoots a 73, and, he, and he's blazing. He's ready to take this puppy home. Um, he comes out, this is Baltusrol Golf Club, and lights up a 73. He's got a two-stroke leak on the field. Uh, and David is six strokes back. So he's really not in sight at this point. Um, second round comes about. David fares better, but not much better. He, he catches up on the field, but Willie Anderson goes out and shoots a 76, which is still that day the best round, I believe, of the tournament. Um, so he goes 73-76. So that day he shoots the best round. You have David Brown shoots a 77, and he is – what seven strokes back after two two rounds, which you know at that point, you know if you look at modern standards for U.S. Open, you have a player seven strokes back after two rounds, you're not really counting on them to take this thing home. Yeah, right? pretty tough, pretty difficult I mean, to tough. do. So third round comes around, and here David Brown, and he's just playing consistent golf. He shoots a seventy-five, so every day he's getting a little better, right? He's now at two thirty-one. Willie Anderson now. Again, very consistent, shoots a back-to-back 76, and he's 225. So now he still has a six-stroke lead going into the final round, right? This is a a caliber champion. We have Mm -hmm. two major championship winners going head-to-head. Final round, unbelievably, Willie Anderson loses his stuff. He hits a couple balls in bunkers. Back then, you have to imagine uh, the equipment we had. We hadn't figured out uh, bounce yet on our wedges. We didn't have wedges. We had niblicks. But uh, they didn't have bounce. A lot of the souls had digs. So when you went into a bunker, it was a real hazard. So Willie Anderson comes in and cards an 82 with a total of 307. Wow. Now, this is David Brown's oh boy. chance. Oh, boy. David Brown's chance. David Brown, Mr. Consistent, goes 79, 77, 75, 76, and ties the great Willie Anderson wow. for a playoff. Now, here's the weird thing. I don't like this about the history, but back then, they didn't play – on Sundays, even in the United States. So the playoff didn't start till Monday. Right, because they played 36 on Saturday. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, they go 36 on – you're correct. They go 36 on Saturday, no golf on Sunday. Championship continues playoff, 18 holes on uh, Monday morning. And so Willie Anderson comes out, does his thing. He shoots – they had terrible weather conditions. He posts an 82 – David Brown goes side by side with him. He shoots a 42 on the front nine, just like Willie Anderson. So after nine holes, they're tied up. And David Brown caught a couple bunkers and caught a, I think he had a three putt and ended oh. up carding an 84 to lose by two strokes wow. to the great Willie Anderson. Had Brown won that, would he have been the first to win both? Yeah, he would have. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Wow. Wow. How did golf differ? 
from the game he was used to playing back in Scotland. Was there oh, a difference? Yeah, there was. I mean, our game was quite different. Um, let's see. This is 1903. So 1903, it probably wouldn't be fair to call our golf courses in America goat tracks, but it wouldn't be far from it if I said it. Boy, have I heard so, that. Yeah, so essentially, here's what would happen. Uh, a lot of our courses in the United States um, were they were set up with Victorian-style bunkers. So now today, if you're playing Baltus Roll, your ball goes into a bunker. It goes down into the sand, right? And you're hitting out of the sand over, you know, the 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 field of play, right? Like your the turf of the ground and the fairway are at the same level as the the head, the face of the bunker. Does that make sense? Yes, back sir. Then, certainly does. Yeah. So back then, it, I called it the Victorian style of golf in the United States up until about. Oh, 1908. So we're still right in there. So in 1903, the bunkers were, how do I say this? They were, the sand would be level with the turf. So they'd be level with the fairway. They would be flat with the fairway. And what they did was they build up sod walls in front of the green. Like, so facing you toward the green, there would be a four foot wall of dirt hmm. on your level. So you'd be sitting in the, in the sand and you'd have this mound of dirt sticking out of the turf three to four feet, mm. straight vertical, and you'd have to go over it. Oh, wow. So it was very different. I mean, you had Garden City was one of the first courses to change that. And then uh, National Golf Links of America really changed the face of golf on this on this continent anyway, uh, when they built uh, National Golf Links, which was uh, Charles Blair McDonald. He brought in Scotland's you know most famous holes, which we call templates. Mm-hmm. and change golf design in the United States forever. Interesting. Outside of the U.S. Open, did did David Brown play much golf, or did he work in the golf industry at all in the U.S.? Yeah, he was a, he was a golf pro. So back then, um, really until the 1920s, when you were a professional, that meant you worked in a golf shop. So you were your local head pro. Um, that was your full-time gig. And then, you know, when you played in a open championship you that would be your chance to you know go shine and to give you an idea um you would win like if you won the uh the uh like for instance willie anderson winning the 1903 u.s open he collected two hundred dollars which is roughly i think i did this number before seven thousand five hundred bucks not a lot yeah i mean even for today's standard right i mean it's it's good money it's not great money so you're not buying a home you're not um you're not doing anything spectacular with that money. Uh, you're just basically defending the honor of the club. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So it was much more for like, um, I don't know, individual honor than it was for reward. Hmm. So he basically though, came here to the States because of the opportunities. Yeah. He ends up working in the golf industry. Now, if I understand correctly or, if I don't understand correctly, yeah, he he invested a lot of his money. He was here for yeah. quite some time, but yeah. like many, he lost his fortune in the Depression in 1929, and he returned home to Scotland. Yeah, and so, basically died penniless. Yeah, what was life like for him leading up to that, and then what was life like for him after he had returned to Scotland? Yeah, so... 
up until that point before the crash, um, he was doing quite well. Um, definitely, I'd say extremely well for a golf professional. And uh, he was living a very good life. And when the market crashed, um, you know, I hate to correlate, um, you know, how much money you have in the bank to your health. But let's just say it took a toll on him. Mm -hmm. And when he returned back to Scotland, I, I think it's safe to say he was the shadow of the man he was uh, prior to the Great Depression. And, I, and to be fair, I think that's true for a lot of people in that era. Who, sure. Nobody, we hadn't had a Great Depression. It was the first. And it destroyed everything from great golf courses to great people. Mm -hmm. um, took the lives of many too early mm -hmm. because they couldn't handle the financial strain, uh, you know, that was put upon their shoulders. Sure. And he yeah. was no different. It's, a, it's tragic. Uh, there were other folks that lost their fortune and in and, 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 and very true light lost their lives shortly after because of the toll. Mm -hmm. Sure. Why is David Brown an important figure in golf history? And what should we know or remember about him? Hmm. I mean, I think, I think one of the things to take away, I, I think, again, um, I, if you're ever the, the, the guy who roots for the underdog, David Brown's your guy, right? I mean, unlike Mungo Park, he doesn't come from, you know, any kind of uh, uh, inheritance of golf abilities. Um, he doesn't come from a family of golfers. He's just like a hard worker. I mean, I think it speaks to him that here's this guy that gave up golf to be a roofer. I mean, there's, you know, gives up, you know, gives up, gives up a life of being a, a traveling professional, becomes a roofer, comes back on a whim, wins the greatest major of all time, makes a name for himself. And then uses that opportunity to make a life for himself in the United States, barring the Great Depression, a great life. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I like that story. I, I, I think it's one of those stories that's surprising. Um, I like those kind of out of nowhere uh, conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, David Park, uh, Mungo Park, and the next guy we're going to talk about is another equally great story. Yeah. About a guy that just comes out of the shadows and, and shines when the light's on him. Yeah, I mean, Jack Fleck, let's jump ahead now, yeah, 1955, and it's Unreal. a, a, his, his introduction to the professional game is very similar. Yeah. So, Ben Hogan, right? Ben Hogan is yep. the biggest name in the game, along with Byron Nelson, who I guess at that point might have, in he 55, much, he was he basically was retired. retired from yeah, the game. Semi-retired. But Sam he's still Sneed, at Sam Snead. Yep. And Jack Fleck, he was a virtual unknown. He turned professional in 1939, yeah. and he had never won an official PGA event until yeah. 1955. Yeah. So first, before we get into the 55 U.S. Open, who was Jack Fleck? And tell us about his career up until 1955. Yeah, there's not a lot to tell. Um, no, you there's know, not. <laughs> here's this guy. You know, he's he's uh, he's kind of come. He's a kind of out of nowhere. You know, he's born in Bettendorf, Iowa, right? So he's the first Iowan ever to win a major. Uh, Zach Johnson being one as well, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I'm an Iowa boy too, so this is a, a a very good story for me to tell. I like I like this story of Jack Fleck. He's, he was also a very humble guy and a God fearing guy, which is always nice to have in your major championships. So uh -huh. you so anyway, you know, he's born in 1921. 
Um, he is born and lives through the Great Depression. He is comes from a family of farmers. Um, in the late 20s and early 30s, um, he ends up kind of being forced into being a golf professional. And the reasoning is the family, and this isn't widely reported, but um, I think it was 19, I think it was 26, 1926. I'm almost 100% sure on that. Uh, the family lost their farm. So it was about three years before the Great Depression kicked off, but mm -hmm. there was already some pinch of the Great Depression um, in the Midwest. And it came to light and his family felt it and essentially they lost the farm. And so, um, you know, he starts working, he's, he works as a caddy and kind of works his way up in his game. He becomes pro, like you said, in 1939. And he's kind of like, he's around a living. Um, his main job, oddly enough, is working as a uh, municipal golf pro. So he's not even at the level where, you know, he's like uh, Ben Hogan was the pro at uh, Hershey Country Club, mm -hmm. um, you know. Sam Sneed was at the Greenbrier. I mean, these are like well-known established clubs. He's at a place, I think it was called Duck Creek, uh, which <laughs> is a municipal golf club in Bettendorf or in Davenport. And um, he's literally nowhere. He comes out of nowhere. And he he's one of the most improbable wins. Um, it, he is literally perhaps the greatest David versus Goliath story in all of golf. Sure. I mean, when you read about, yeah, when you read about what he did, but before we get there, he, he also served his country in the Navy. He did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And, he was, go ahead. Please. Yeah. And I think he was actually involved in Normandy. Yeah. He was one of the gentlemen who, who stormed the beach of, uh, of Normandy. And I'll tell you another quick little story that uh, and this is after he gets back, obviously, but it, before we get into this big match, in 1955, he meets up at the pro at St. Petersburg uh, Country Club. And sitting on the, the, the desk of the pro, I can't remember the pro's name, was a brand new set of the first ever Ben Hogan irons. <laughs> and I don't know if you know this, but what he did was he, he was talking to the pro and he was like, boy, those are nice. Do you think, do you think Ben Hogan would make me a set? And the pro <laughs> just like looks them up and down and is like, you know, what have you done? Right. I mean, like, you, who are you to uh, expect to get a set of, you know, these irons? So anyway, he goes out of his way, writes a letter to Ben Hogan and Ben Hogan returns the letter and says, you know what? Why don't you come out and play in the colonial invitational and you'll be my host? So he shows up at the Ben Hogan factory. I mean, he is literally no one at this point. He is he is less than no one. He is not. He's your journeyman pro who today would be going back and forth from the web.com to the PGA tour every once in a while uh -huh. that was kind of, and working in a muni club. So he goes in and Ben Hogan, Jack Flack liked to believe that Ben Hogan brought him in uh, and, and kind of struck up a friendship with him because of his background. Both came from poor backgrounds. Uh -huh. um, you know, I mean, the note stories known now it wasn't back then that Ben Hogan's father committed suicide, right. put a lot of pressure on Ben and much like that. Jack's family, while his parents were still alive, they lost the farm and kind of pushed him into uh, working a little bit earlier than maybe some of his uh, compatriots. And so they kind of struck it up. And Ben Hogan took his specs and he made uh, one of the first ever uh, Ben Hogan golf clubs for a professional for Jack Fleck. Wow, the irony. No, it gets better. So, you know, now we're, ha you know, week months later, we have the U.S. Open and Olympic. 
and the, at the Olympic club and Jack Fleck shows up to do, you know, his practice rounds. He plans on playing like 80, 80 holes just to get used to the course. Cause he's never been there before. And Ben Hogan's already there. Surprise, surprise practicing. Ben Hogan finds him on the range and he goes, by the way, I made you two additional clubs. Here's two wedges that you'll love. <laughs> so Hogan goes out of his way to find Jack Fleck, makes these wedges for him, specifically for him to play in the U.S. Open, and hands them to him right before, you know, his practice rounds. Wow. Which really goes against what most people think about Ben Hogan being, you know, this hard-headed, impersonal, you know, jerk, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so essentially you have, you know, if you want to call it the Davis versus Goliath, you have a nine-time major championship winner in Ben Hogan, a four-time U.S. Open champion versus a club professional from a small municipal golf club in Iowa. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. So Jack Fleck at that time had played in, I think, three majors. And in those three majors prior to 1955, had missed the cut and had finished 52nd and 64th. Wow. So he, he was a zero threat. Yeah, all he, he really zero. did was he, he played in a lot of local events and he yeah. won a few small tournaments, not anything on the PGA. Yeah. And he you know, he gets out on tour. Tell yeah. us about those early years if you can and how hard it was for him and what interests me most is yeah. what did he do to support himself? Was it being the club pro? I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I think a lot of those guys back then would, you know, the they club professional job was really supporting their, you know, professional ambitions. Um, you know, his, his pro job had to be one of the lesser paying jobs. I mean, it's a municipal golf course. It's not a, mm-hmm. it's not Cedar Rapids country club or Davenport country club. It's, you know, duck Creek. And, um, I think he just, he kind of, he always had a good mindset. I mean, I think you can say that about what he did in the U.S. Open here. He just always believed in himself. Uh, he was a religious man and put his faith in God and and just, you know, basically said, you know, this is what I'm meant to do. And I, I basically dink and dunked and won a couple opportunities to play good enough to play in the U.S. Open and earned his shot. Yeah, I mean, in 55... It, it was 1955, and that's yeah. the year he decided to give the tour a chance full a time. Chance. Yeah. Right. So that's the similarity to to David Brown is, yeah, Brown comes off the roof and goes out yeah. and wins the Open Championship. This is really Jack's first year on tour. So, yeah. so what prompted the decision? And again, I ask. What made him think he had the game to compete with the likes of a Hogan or a Snead, a Tommy Bolt, a, a Julius Boros, a Jackie Burke, and all yeah. the others who were winning Sam out on Snead, tour? Yeah. Sam Snead, yeah. What gave Jack Fleck the idea that he could actually go out on tour and compete with those guys and maybe even win? Yeah, I think, I think you could probably ask this of every major championship winner. And I think the guy just had self-belief. I mean, I really think that when it came down to it, going into the U.S. Open, he had a feeling he was winning that tournament. Wow. Um, As a matter of fact, if I remember right, um, he was on the range at the Olympic Club hitting balls. And much like Johnny Miller's story of the 1973 U.S. Open, I believe he believed that God spoke to him whether directly or he felt his presence or whatever you want to call it. Um, and just felt like this was his to win. 
Interesting. And what's funny is you wonder if he, you know, I, if you want me to jump in, I will, but you wonder after the first round, if he still had that because yeah. Jack Fleck, Jack Fleck in the, after the first round was nine strokes off the lead. Exactly. Before he we get there, the, one, one, one other question before yeah, we get there. You bet. How did he qualify for the U.S. Open? Did, was it like qualifying today? Did you have to qualify? How did he? No, yeah, himself? he had to qualify. There was regional qualifying, okay. and he played his way in. Okay, so here yeah. we go. The Olympic Club in San Francisco, not exactly an easy course to navigate. No, and, no, very and, tough. As a and fact. as you just said, he was Jack Fleck. Be that that is was less than remarkable in the first round. Tell oh us about God. that round. And you, like you said, he was nine strokes off the lead. Yeah, it was a horrific round for him. Yeah, it is. Matter of fact, uh, we all know how the story is going to end. So I don't think I'm giving anything up, but it was the, uh, the biggest swing from being nine strokes back. I believe nine strokes back to win is the biggest swing ever in U.S. Open history. Mm -hmm. And it might be in all major championship history. You, you don't go nine strokes down and win a major championship. It just doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, so he went out and, uh, I mean, he shot a 76. And Tommy Bolt at the time shot a 67, 300 par. So after the first round, Jack Fleck is nine strokes off the lead of Tommy Bolt and four strokes behind Ben Hogan. Mm -hmm. And yet, even after that first round, he thinks he's going to win it. I mean, I, I, I mean, I love this guy. How, how do you not love somebody who, <laughs> you know what I mean? But what really... changed about his game? What gave him that confidence? What did he do in the second round? To you know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what Ben Hogan would say. Ben Hogan would say he had the best irons in the game. <laughs> yeah, they were Ben Hogan irons. The best irons in the game helped them. And I, you know, I think between having best clubs uh, in the game, according to Ben Hogan, I'm sure, and that self-confidence, and I, I think it's just those two. He was just driven. He was kind of a, like a, a man to be reckoned with. And, you know, it, it speaks to it. He comes back in the second round and fires a 69, which I believe was tied for the best round of the day. Right, and right. I mean, in a single round, he is one stroke off the lead. He goes from nine strokes off the lead to one stroke off the lead. Think about that. That's an eight-stroke swing to the field. It's it's incredible. But it then, doesn't happen. Yeah, and then the next day, Saturday, again, they play 36 holes. Yeah. The morning round, the third, he, he didn't play all that well, but he sure as heck turned it around yeah. in, in the final so, yeah. round. So yeah, what about Hogan, Saturday? Hogan, yeah, Hogan fires a 72 in the third round. Uh, Fleck, I wouldn't even say stumbles, but he shoots a 75, which was, listen, folks, you got to remember, Olympic Club was a bear back then. It's a bear now, but bear under those conditions with persimmons, big time. So he is three strokes off the lead going into the final round. Now, what you have to remember about the final round in the U.S. Open back then is we didn't stagger people by – by by their score the, the, of the, the previous round. People had designated times they went off. Mm. Okay? So here we have, after the round three, Fleck is three off the lead, uh, held by Ben Hogan, Sam Snead, and Julius Boros. I mean, if you're going to have a fearsome threesome, <laughs> you're going to try to beat them, that's it. So one of my favorite stories about uh, the 1955 U.S. Open starts now. So... 
what happened is back in the U back then, uh, NBC covered the U S open, but there was only an hour's worth of coverage. Mm -hmm. So what they basically got was Ben Hogan finishing his round. So the fourth round starts, um, with, uh, Hogan has a three stroke lead over, uh, Fleck. He finishes with a 70, which is the lowest round of the day other than one man, which who hadn't finished. So we have Jack Fleck, who's like five holes back and Hogan posts a 70. And at that time, I believe that, yeah, it was a 12 stroke lead over the field minus him. Wow. Let me double check that. It's something like that. So he goes, yeah. So he has a 12 stroke lead over everyone in the field except one man. Jack Fleck. Yeah. And people have got to be saying, who is Jack Fleck? Oh, absolutely. So I'm sorry. He had a five stroke lead over the field. So like, there's no way. Yeah. It's basically Jack Fleck has five holes to play and is a stroke back at that point. And NBC is finishing its coverage. This is one of my favorite stories. And a matter of fact, there's a photo to actually document this. And so, um, Gene Saracen is a commentator uh, for the NBC broadcast, and he congratulates Ben Hogan on TV for winning his fifth U.S. Open. <laughs> and and the photographers ask Ben Hogan to hold up his hand with the number five to oh designate his my. fifth. Open. And that is a famous photo. A lot of people have seen that of him holding up his hands, and they think it's him showing the calloused hands. It's him designating his five U.S. Open victories. Oh wow! So Ben Hogan later said he thought he won the U.S. Open by two strokes. He knew how hard those finishing holes were, and he thought for sure that he had won it. So here we go. Jack Fleck now bogeys the 14th hole, right? So he has four holes to play, and he had, he's now two strokes down. So he's, he's got to birdie the next two of the next four holes at this place, which no one's going to do. NBC co closes its telecast. Ben Hogan heads into the locker room. And um, so Ben Hogan's changing the locker room and uh, everyone's basically congratulating him uh, for winning his fifth U.S. Open. And, he, you know, he's kind of like, well, you know, it's not over yet. But at the same time, in his head, he's won it. Sort of like the Heidi game in football. Yeah, exa exactly. Yes, exactly like that. So um, right after this, so I said Fleck uh, bogeys the 14th hole, so he's two back. So uh, Fleck looks around once he gets on the 15 T box and all the observers are walking away because he's <laughs> lost the tournament. In their eyes. So he gets mad. I mean, he really gets mad and it makes him concentrate and he goes out and he birdies 15. So now Ben Hogan sitting back in the, in the, in the clubhouse in the locker room and he hears this faint cheer in the distance. Right. And words comes back that he's birdied uh, the 15, but Ben Hogan and everybody else is like, Listen, those threat last three holes are a bear. There's very little chance he's going to win this thing. So what happens is Fleck keeps going. He pars the next two holes. Now he has to birdie the treacherous 18th hole. Oh, and boy. Hogan's sitting there in the locker room. He's heard that he's got to birdie the last hole. He's feeling very good. Word trickles in that now Fleck has hit his ball in the right rough with a frontside pin, leaving himself a, a treacherous seven iron in like four-inch, five-inch rough. And... It's pretty much acknowledged by most in the room, maybe not Hogan at the time, that Hogan had won his fifth U.S. Open. Again, by the way, because you know he'd already been congratulated. <laughs> and Hogan, all of a sudden, they hear another cheer, and Hogan knows that he's hit one close. He's not even watching. 
So Fleck hits one to about seven feet. And now Hogan is in pure dread because he wants him either to par the hole, right? Or he wants him to eagle the hole. He does not want the birdie. Because he right, doesn't want to, doesn't want a playoff, doesn't want eighteen holes. Every yeah, and, and part of that has got to be what people might not remember yeah. is the the accident that affected Ben Hogan. He didn't play every yeah. tournament every week. No. This guy had bad legs. Yeah, yeah. So at that time, I, I believe the only complaint he had right there was his left knee was aching him, which was pretty good for him, and um, he. He, he goes out, he makes the putt, they go into um, the playoff, you know, and... Uh, what, what, wait, wait, what was, yeah, what, was Hogan's, what was Hogan's reaction when, oh, when Fleck yeah. birdies that so hole this, to tie? The story goes is that when, right before he heard that second cheer, that one that put him on the green, Hogan had his hands, you know, his, his face in his hands. Like, he was very, he want like I said, Anything, anything but a playoff is what he wanted. And, um, yeah, it just, it put him in a bad spot and then he breezed the hole and, uh, you know, we don't know because Hogan kept a lot in. All he said was, I'll see you boys tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, that was, it was as simple as that. I'll see you boys tomorrow. And, you know, the, the playoff starts the next day. Jack Flex feeling good about himself. He believes himself. Hogan one day more weary uh and you know jack fleck just outplayed him quite frankly just outplayed him he and was no never one gave down. fleck much of a chance in a one-on-one showdown against ben hogan well i mean you got to think ben hogan's winning it even a playoff i mean that, that's where the smart money was as a matter of fact one of um jack fleck's friends was asked if he was worried about ben hogan playing with jack fleck in the playoffs because he said to him he's like you know ben hogan doesn't say much on the golf course and his buddy said well, you don't know my buddy Jack. I guarantee he'll say less to Hogan than Hogan does to him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was there to work. He wasn't there to talk. And he goes out the next day and, I mean, I don't want to say owns Hogan, but he never was down. He uh-huh. ends up winning by three strokes over Ben Hogan. the Hulk, Wow. And wow. becomes the most improbable, guaranteed improbable modern day major champion because unlike Ben Curtis and Michael Campbell and many that have followed, this guy was a instructor at a municipal. He was 10 cup. It was 10 cup. He was your 10 cup moment yeah, right there. Yeah. That's the best yeah. comparison you can give. So quitting it, his job as a club pro and going out on tour full time, I guess yeah. sort of the right decision. Oh yeah. Yeah. After that, you know, yeah, for sure. I mean, you got to just love, I mean, Jack Fleck, and he never lost that humbleness, mm-hmm. you know, he had, I mean, call it the Iowa boy thing or, you know, just like Zach Johnson, extremely humble in life. And he was always like that, uh, even after his, you know, great U.S. Open victory. Now, what a lot of people forget is um, Ben Hogan never won another major after his amazing triple crown in 1953. Sure. He let two U.S. Opens kind of slip through his hands. Uh, this one, and in 1960, he was a playoff with uh, Arnold Palmer at Cherry Hills mm-hmm. and lost that in the playoff. I believe on the 17th hole, he uncharacteristically hit it in a tree on the right-hand side of the fairway mm-hmm. and I believe took a bogey. I played Cherry Hills. I hit it into that tree, 
and I took a par. I just want to say, Ben Hogan, <laughs> the only time I've ever won up Ben Hogan, I promise you. But ah, um, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that Hogan, after 53, after the pinnacle of his career, was in a lot of majors, but never won. Never won another one. Right. And, and you know what? And to this day, I'll give you a, a modern day perspective of that is um, I'm wrong here, by the way, but I, I thought we were going to be saying the same thing about Tiger Woods. I thought he would be like Ben Hogan. I thought their their accidents and their comebacks would be parallel to each other in that they'd hit this this you know age where they're competing in majors but may never win one again. And then, of course, Tiger proves me wrong uh, at the Masters, so good for him. And uh, he still might win a couple more. He might. Who knows? He might. Then mean, again, though, incredible. you, you never, never know. know with history. Yep. Like I said, history plays us all a fool. Yep. Yep. It is known for taking the great prognosticators and making fools of them. Yeah. As Tiger Woods proved to us all yep. by winning the match. He sure did. Now, Flack never won another major either. And, you know, I, he really didn't excel on tour afterwards. No, on just no. two more tournaments. Tell us about yeah. his career. Yeah. I mean, he, he had um, his career was not really eventful from then on. I mean, I think you'd say he was kind of like a, a Mike Weir. I think that's probably a good way to say it. Sure. Um, he only had, I think you could correct me or am I wrong? Cause I'm not looking at anything here, but I believe he had two top tens in majors thereafter. He was sporadic when he did play. Uh-huh. Uh, he did play at every U S open after I think he was top five in the U S open. And that might've been at cherry Hills. And then I think in 62, two years later, he was top 10. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh-huh. outside of that, um, he withdrew from a lot. He had a bunch of top 30 finishes. He had a couple top 20s, but it was really unremarkable. Um, not, I don't want to take anything away from him. That's probably a cruel way to say it, but he was, he was, he was better than a journeyman pro. Um, he was out there. He was competing. He was doing well, but he wasn't winning tournaments like you'd expect a major championship winner to win. Sure. sure. I think he had three PGA Tour wins uh, in his career, and that's including the major. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, but again, he re- he wrote his way into history. And and to be fair, Ben Hogan was so happy for Jack Flack. I mean, well, that's first of good. all, that's, it that's was nice. his first ever win by Ben Hogan and his uh, golf company. So he, uh, you know, you say what you will, but Jack Fleck proved that Ben Hogan could make quality clubs. So they technically, in a way, Ben Hogan won as well. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he, they were both in a playoff playing Ben Hogan clubs, right? So <laughs> pretty hard to argue with those kind of uh, numbers. Right. So I know the, how the we should. Re- marketing machine would run away with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So I know how we should remember Jack Fleck as one of the most improbable winners in the history of the U.S. Open. Connor, this has been a lot of fun. I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Tell us again about talking golf and and when the new episodes are released, and are you working on anything else? Yeah, so let's see. Uh, talking golf history is basically every other week. Uh, we have special podcasts for uh, the major championships. We bring on uh, you know, famous guests and golf historians. And the whole point is, uh, I think much like your podcast is to make history interesting. Yeah. Uh, we'll never share something that's going to put you to sleep. As a matter of fact, if you're ever going to be introduced to the podcast, I would recommend you going to our rules edition, 
Um, cause it is one of the funniest podcasts you'll ever hear in golf where I go through all the rules of golf going back to the 1700s and basically pick out the funniest rules you've ever heard of. Oh, that sounds like fun. And yeah, I mean, you'll get a good kick out. There are, are, are club rules like, um, um, I can't remember the name of the club. There's a club in Chicago that has the weirdest club rules you'll ever see. And they run even to this day. Uh, and then there's the wartime rules of world war two. And those are amazing. So I go through each one of them. Like if your ball lands in a bomb crater and the bomb has not detonated, you are allowed to lift clean and replace. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. But if the bomb goes off during your golf swing, you can, you'll have to take a one stroke penalty if you replace your ball. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> and and I'm like, there are literally things like if, if, if we are under enemy invasion, like the Nazis are running down the fairway, you are allowed to leave your ball and come back and you will not be penalized for time. <laughs> and I'm like, how great is that? I mean, like the Scots got it right. I mean, like we're playing through a war here, folks. Let me play through. That's that's awesome. Oh, yeah, there's some really fun stuff. So other projects, I'm I'm working on a couple uh, videos. Hopefully that'll make the Golf Channel. Uh, some conversations there about future uh, major championships and bits like uh, the Lost Legend of Lido. And uh, I'm thinking about kicking off a new podcast uh, called Shifty Things That Made the Modern Game of Golf." Oh, and interesting. It's all like those will be like short, 15 minutes um podcast on things that you might not know about the history of the game of golf but then there might be things like graphite shafts mm. and that's a full episode mm -hmm. so you know a 15 minute episode on how graphite shafts change the game so things like that so it's kind of fun oh that is fun well no doubt you're very passionate about golf and i want to thank you again for coming on sports forgotten heroes and i hey i i i hope you'd uh, consider coming back sometime Absolutely. I'd love to. I had a really great conversation with you. It's been, it's always fun to talk about somebody who cares about golf history or history in general. Yeah, it's, it is. It's a lot of fun. Connor, thanks again for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And uh, I'll be sure to tune into uh, Talking Golf as well. Yeah, I love your podcast. Keep doing that great work. All right. Thanks. When I opened today's episode and talked about the fact that there have been many golfers who have won a major championship whom we never heard of until they won, I was talking about guys like John Daly, Brooks Kepka, Ben Curtis, Keegan Bradley, or guys like a Walter Bergamo, Chandler Harper, Johnny McDermott, to mention a few. As for Mungo Park, he never won anything of significance again. David Brown came close, and Jack Fleck won the 1960 Phoenix Open and the 1960 Bakersfield Open. He also won the 1979 PGA Seniors Championship, which, let's give Jack the respect he deserves. That was no small task. After all, that is a major championship, too. And in 1995, he teamed with Tommy Bolt to win the Liberty Mutual Legends of Golf. But that's it. None of the three really did much of anything after their improbable wins at the Open Championship and the U.S. Open. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. And again, thank you to Connor for joining us. Next time, we're going to talk about the career of a terrific pitcher, Ray Collins. He was a force with the Boston Red Sox before injuries forced him to retire after the 1915 season, just his seventh 
in the majors. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Talking Golf History Podcast. And a very special thanks to Warren Rowan and his wonderful podcast, Sports Forgotten Heroes. You can find Warren's show anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.